Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 1045 a.m. and 5 p.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, good morning, church. It is so good to be with you. And now it's time for us to turn our attention to God's word because he has spoken and we need to hear from him this morning. Agreed? All right, so if you have your copy of God's Word, would you grab it? Open to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. And uh, if you do not have a copy of the book of Acts, we've been passing out those Scripture Journal Bibles. If you want one of those Bibles, if you haven't already received one, go ahead and just slip your hand up. Our ushers will find you and get you a copy of that. It's a great little resource for you uh, as you uh, study through uh, the book of Acts with us. I've been uh, praying for a couple of weeks knowing that I was going to have the opportunity to, to teach this passage, and we're going to cover a, a, the rest of chapter 2, which is a large portion of Scripture. And I'm just, I, I stand before you this morning confident that there is something for every single one of you in this text. Uh, we're going to be able to, we're going to kind of just hit the mountaintops to get through all our content this morning. But what I want you to know is that, again, there's been prayer for you. There's been, there's been an inspired word of God laid before us. And so I, I want us to pray here in a few moments just that God would open our eyes to what it is from this text that he wants to specifically impress on our hearts this morning. Last week we saw uh, the first part of chapter 2, the first 13 verses, where Luke in his uh, account here uh, tells us about the arrival of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And in that moment, 120 believers who had been gathered in a room waiting, like Jesus had instructed them to do, received the Holy Spirit and began to speak of the mighty works of God, is what the text tells us. Began to speak of the mighty works of God in, in different languages than their native language. That God, through the Holy Spirit, gave them this ability to communicate in a language different than their own. And Luke said that that when the Holy Spirit came, there was a loud sound, a sound like the sound of a a mighty, violent, rushing wind. And that sound was heard, not just by those in the room, but by those who were around that area. There were many people at this time in Jerusalem. And so that sound was a a cause to stir. And so a crowd began to investigate, "What, what is going on? And in his commentary, on Acts, Chuck Swindoll summarizes those first 13 verses that we looked at last week like this. He said, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down with the roaring sound of a violent wind and a flash of Shekinah light that gave the otherwise hesitant Peter a miraculous ability to communicate the gospel. Unbelieving spectators marveled at what they saw. Some rejected the tongues event and ridiculed these followers of Christ as drunks. But others couldn't dismiss what they had seen, but neither could they understand the implication. And deeply troubled, they asked, what does this mean? Peter's going to answer that important question in our text this morning, and I want us to listen to it. Now, typically, we stand in the the reading of God's Word. We're not going to do that this morning because we'd be standing for a long time. 
But I want you to pay attention as we work carefully through this entire text, verses 14 through 47. And I want us to see Peter's response to this question. These people who are seeing, they heard this sound, they're seeing these 120 followers of Christ now speaking in a, in a language of their own, which they shouldn't be able to speak because they're from different cultures. All different cultures had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And this sound and these actions, they needed answers. And now Peter, filled with the Spirit, is going to respond. And so let's pray that God would help us clearly see what he wants for us this morning in his word. God, I thank you so much for bringing us together. I thank you so much for giving us your word. And God, I pray now that you would use your Holy Spirit in us to help us understand the answer, to help us understand the importance, not only of the Holy Spirit, but of your son, Jesus Christ. God, use me, speak clearly. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. If you're ready, say ready. ready. Amen. Let's, talk. Let's start this. Verse 14 says, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And that shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't know about you, but when I watch baptism, I get emotional. I get teased a little bit about it being emotional uh, when, I, when I can preach because uh, there's just something about the word of God, the spirit of God that just can, can do it because I'm typically not a crier. Um, this is incredible. This is not just something that Christians do and if you're a guest today and you've never seen baptism, there, there's nothing special about that water. Straight good old city of Salem water. But what this represents is something that you need to know if you're not saved and it should be an encouragement to all of us who are. And that is, this is a symbol of what Christ has done in another life, the transformation that has taken place. Someone who was dead in their trespasses and sins has now been brought to life in Jesus Christ. And now the Holy Spirit, the same one that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 2 now, is indwelling those people. God is with them. God is guiding them. God is directing them. God is giving them new passions. God is giving them victory over sinful desires that they've struggled with in the past. Baptism is a, a living proof that the power of the gospel and the transforming work, transforming work of the Holy Spirit is still happening today. Do you believe that? Amen. Because, see, the Spirit of God can transform anyone. And I want you to hear that. The Spirit of God can transform anyone. That means if you do not have a relationship with Jesus this morning, the Spirit of God today could change your life forever. The Spirit of God can transform anyone. That means if you've been saved for 70 years, but you haven't been close to God, 
lately. The Spirit of God can go into that and he can restore the power, the fire, the passion to serve your Savior all the way till the end. Do you believe that? Peter is a testimony of this transformation. 50 days before he gets up and makes this statement and he preaches this sermon, this is the same man that when confronted by some crowds of people who were accusing him of being one of Jesus' friends, denied he even knew Jesus. He faced that moment of truth that a lot of us haven't had to face, that moment of truth where, do you follow Jesus? And this is a guy who confidently said, you can do, you can kill me. I'm never turning my back on you, Jesus. But when the moment of truth came, he said, I don't even know that guy. Now, we don't have to wag our finger and say, Peter. Because Peter knew it. It says that he immediately, I mean, it was weeping. He knew what he had done. It was just as Jesus had said it would happen. And yet now this man, 50 days later, stands up with a confidence and a certainty that wasn't reflected 50 days before. This day was different. This Peter was different because of what the Spirit of God had done in his life. He had seen the risen Christ. He had been restored to fellowship by Christ. He had been taught with that group of people who spent time with Jesus for 40 days after he had risen from the grave being taught about the kingdom. He had taken in all that teaching. He had seen Christ leave this planet back into heaven where he is right now. And now he had just witnessed the coming of the Holy Spirit and he finds himself in another moment. You know God's a God of second chances? Peter blew that first opportunity to stand with Christ. And yet Christ didn't just throw him out Peter stands now in this text with another opportunity, a moment of truth. All these people are asking questions. The mockers are saying these people are drunk. These other people are going, what is going on here? And Peter had another opportunity to either stand with Christ or to cower in fear. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he speaks to the crowd. Now commentators call this text in Acts 2 Peter's first sermon, the first Christian sermon, the first time a follower of Christ delivered a sermon based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that he died, was buried, and rose again for our sins. And many commentators say this is the greatest sermon ever preached. Okay? We need to listen to what Peter is saying. Don't be confused. I know my name's Pete. I'm not the same guy. I'm praying that I don't mess it up. But here's what I want you to know. This sermon is simple yet complete. It has all the components of a great message, but here's what you need to know. It wasn't the structure or Peter's delivery that made the message of the gospel powerful. It was the spirit of God that made his message powerful. And I've been praying and asking God to help us all see that same power this morning. Not to just stir us up in some kind of emotional moment and then we leave here and go back into our busy lives, but really that the Spirit of God would strike us in the heart in the same way that we're going to read about here in a few moments. Because his message was Spirit-led, it contained the power to open blind eyes, to soften hard hearts, to transform lives. And, And friends, we all need that today. 
And so Peter's audience had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. And back in verse 5 last week, we see Peter refer to them as Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. These are people who had been followers of uh, the God of the Old Testament, people who had been following that, that structure, who, who may or may not have been in Jerusalem during the crucifixion. And now Peter does what all spirit-led preachers do when a group of people asks a question pertaining about God or what something, something God is doing. He takes them to the word of God. He points them to what God has said. And so he quickly dismisses the fact that these men aren't drunk. It's, it's nine o'clock in the morning, plus the laws prevent people from having any kind of alcohol till later in the evening. That's not what's going on here. But then he moves them to the word of God and begins to quote from the prophet Joel. In Joel chapter two, verses 28 through 32, you will find this, this statement. But what Peter is saying, the answer to what does this mean? What's going on? Why is this happening Peter is saying here that the arrival of the Holy Spirit signaled the start of the last days. He uses that terminology. He says, but this is what Joel uttered in in his prophecy. Remember what Joel said. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter's saying, this sign shouldn't be a surprise to you Jewish people. You've been studying the Old Testament. You knew that these types of things were going to come the closer we get to the Lord's return. You should be anticipating this. That term last days just means the days leading up to the physical return of Christ. Now, Peter isn't saying that everything in this prophecy that he quotes from Joel has been fulfilled Verses 19 and 20 talk about some of the things that would be happening on earth just before Christ comes back and establishes his millennial kingdom. Talking about signs and wonders in the heavens and blood and fire and smoke. And in your notes uh, this morning, I want you just to write this down. This era will be culminated with the physical return of Christ to earth in the future. Uh, There's some passages that you can take a look at this week, but in Matthew 24, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 6, All of those texts also speak to these signs that are going to come just before Christ comes back to earth. Even in Acts chapter 3, the next chapter in this letter from Luke, Peter's having a conversation with some people and he speaks to this idea that some of these events are still yet to come. Look real quick with me in Acts chapter 3 verse 19. Peter says, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So here, just a chapter later, Peter's saying that you know, Christ is in heaven and and you still have an opportunity to repent and and he is coming back and he will restore and refresh uh, this time, but that's still in the future. So why does Peter quote that entire prophecy? I think he's reminding the audience of all these things that are gonna happen, all these things that Christ has said, these are things you need to be looking for. This This is just a taste of what's to come. Don't be surprised by this. The Holy Spirit coming wasn't just so that people now could have the, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the promise that Jesus said was going to come, but was, was intended to be a signal. 
He's getting closer. Pay attention. For a believer, anytime we see the Holy Spirit move, anytime we see something that is obviously the Spirit of God in a person's life, it should be an encouragement to us that that is the truth. That is what God, that's my God. He's still doing that. He's still transforming lives. He's still working among his people. When we see baptisms, we should celebrate because that's, that's a testimony that God is still transforming lives. But if you are an unbeliever, when you see the Holy Spirit move, it's a warning. It's a sign. He, he's, made it, he's made it plain. He's declaring this to you. What I said is going to happen is going to happen. I desire for you to have a relationship with me, but there's going to come a point down the timeline when that opportunity will no longer exist. Don't wait. Don't wait. But it wasn't just the signal that the, the last days had started. But when the Holy Spirit came, the arrival of the Holy Spirit also provided a moment for evangelism. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. What an amazing opportunity. Do you know that it is possible to miss the point sometimes? I don't know about you, but... uh, Sometimes I get these ideas that are, are very grand and I'm excited to, to do something and I have a kind of a, a picture of how something should go. Uh, for example, to going on a family vacation. I've been able to take a few road trips with my kids, uh, sometimes by car. One time we rented an RV and I just have this grand picture of it's just going to be, it's going to kind of look like this. You know, all my kids are going to be sitting in there and they're just going to be playing and Holly and I will be in the front seats, just, you know, chatting about how much we love each other and taking in all the scenes. And but oftentimes, if you're like me, my family vacations don't turn out this way. They turn out like this, right? <laughs> we get so focused on the, fam- the trip, the details, making, you know, getting to a certain location. You know, a lot of guys are like, we're not stopping until we get this many miles under our belt. and Go to the bathroom now because we're not stopping or... Uh, you know, it's, it's the kids are fighting and we're arguing and then it's like we get to the place and no one wants to be there. And we're, or, or perhaps it's, you know, in the day now with technology, it's like we, we expect to be in the car talking and interacting with our kids and every single person has headphones in doing their own thing. And the whole point of a family road trip is what? To spend time with family And yet we can go on a family vacation, a family road trip, and actually miss the point, actually not do what the whole thing was designed to do because we get distracted. It is possible for you to focus on the wrong thing. And I think in this story, we don't want to miss the point. Yes, the coming of the Holy Spirit was an amazing event, an event that I'm thankful for. Are you thankful for it? I'm thankful that God has sent his spirit to indwell believers so that I don't have to live life on my own. I don't have to live life trying to rely on my own strength, my own understanding. But here's the point. It wasn't just about this cool event that took place. 
It was, it was a recognition. It was, it was all because Jesus had come. God had sent his son. The son had taken our sins upon himself. He paid for them on the cross. He was buried in a grave. And three days later, he rose victoriously, conquering sin and death. And now there was a way back to the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son. And now we are filled with his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come, but his arrival signaled much more than his existence. And you see, throughout the scriptures, when we see the Holy Spirit move, the work of the Spirit, the demonstrations of the Spirit weren't just to kind of put on a cool demonstration. When we see the Holy Spirit move, God is doing that to get our attention and to point our attention back to God. And Peter sees this, and he is not going to miss this opportunity to share the gospel. Yes, the Holy Spirit has come. You strangers have come around and are looking. What was that sound? What is going on? But let me tell you, um, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. The Spirit came. This is singularly in the last days. This is a taste of what is to come. But you need to hear something. Jesus of Nazareth is more than a man. Amen. He is Lord. He is Christ. And so Peter talks, he shares the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but he doesn't stop making his case. Look at verse 25. Peter goes on to say, for David says concerning him, and now he's gonna quote King David from the Psalms. I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let the Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out on this day that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Note that therefore that we see here in verse 36. So Peter's just got done now quoting these two portions of scripture from the Psalms. And here's his conclusion. Here's his final statement on the matter. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the final statement. This is what you need to know, therefore. Joel prophesied, the Spirit's gonna be poured out. The closer that Christ comes back to to, to finish this story, to set up his kingdom, to judge sin forever, the Spirit's gonna be poured out. You're gonna be seeing signs. But you need to know this Jesus wasn't just an ordinary man. This is the one whom David talked about. And so he's saying, therefore, in light of all this evidence, here's Peter's conclusion, we can be certain that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. You can be certain in a world that says you can't really know anything for certain. 
The Bible says that's not true. You can be certain that this Jesus from the town of Nazareth is not just a man. He is both Lord, Master, and the Christ, the Savior. His death, burial, and resurrection wasn't the only evidence. Peter takes time here to show that Jesus is also the one spoken of in Psalm 16. That's the one we see in verses 25 through 28 in Psalm 110 that he quotes in verse 34. Remember, these are Jewish people. The, the, the whole Bible that we have today, the Old and New Testament, didn't exist. At that point, they only had the Old Testament. And so they would go and they would get together and they would, they would have worship and they would learn and they would have someone speak to them from the Old Testament scriptures and they would grow up memorizing large portions of the Old Testament and they would read the whole thing. They would see not just the story of creation and then the story of Abraham and then the story of, uh, of Noah and, and the story of uh, the Israelites and the Exodus and King David and King Solomon. No, they would read all the way beyond that into the prophets. We're talking about this is what is going to come. This is God's plan. Let me lay it out for you. And so they saw, as they would study the Old Testament scriptures, all these verses that are called messianic prophecies. That just means God is saying, this is who the Messiah is going to be. These are the qualities you need to look for. This is how you're going to know who is the true Messiah, (laughs) And it, and it is, a, is a list of a lot of qualities that only Christ has fulfilled. And he says, you need to know this. Here's, here's what, this Jesus is that man, the one you've been looking for. He is the one that was buried but did not stay dead. He, he did not, his flesh did not receive corruption. And they might have said, well, no, no, David was talking about himself. And Peter says, no, no, no. David, we can go to his tomb right now and we can dig up his remains. But David knew who he was talking about. He was talking about the Messiah, one who would come through his lineage but would be on his throne in the future. That is Jesus. And the one who's going to be exalted at the right hand of the Father until his enemies are made a footstool. That's where Jesus is. Our faith is not blind. I was having a conversation with a buddy of mine this week. We were talking about this topic and just the, the, the attack a lot of times on our faith that it's blind. It's just, you really believe the stories of the Bible? You believe that stuff is true? You believe that that is what life is about? That's what, that's what the purpose and the goal and the hope is? You're basically believing, believing in a fairy tale. You're believing in something that doesn't make any sense. How foolish Believer, don't buy that. Peter is saying here, you can look at the prophecies and you can see Jesus fulfilled them. You can look at what Jesus actually did, that he fulfilled what he said he was going to do, something he had no control over. He was going to allow himself to be crucified, as it says here, according to God's plan, and he was going to be risen from the grave. And he did. And so we have the proof of his resurrection We have the validity, the credibility that's earned and the fact that he's able to make a declaration and he always follows through on it. And then on top of that, you have all these passages that point to one, only one, that's gonna come and provide the only way to Father, offer freely to all men. And he's saying, that is Jesus. Let me show you how he is the one. And here is the point. You can be certain today that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. 
So the people hear this passage, they hear this sermon, and look what, look what happens in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Uh, this week we were, uh, uh, the, the leaders of the church, the elders, uh, we went away for a few days to pray and to talk about what, what is God directing us to, to, to do in the future. And uh, we were enjoying a meal together and uh, I burnt my finger really bad with a baked potato. Like, not manly. I wasn't like fixing a car engine or putting out a fire. I was trying to open up my potato and it like burned me. I didn't get much sympathy from the guys on that, and uh, <laughs> I'm hoping I can share it with you, and you will. But it was just like throbbing. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. I, oh my goodness. And so I, had a, I, had a, I was drinking a LaCroix, and it was cold, and every time I put my hand on the can of LaCroix, it soothed it immediately. I'm like, oh. The second I took it away, it just started throbbing again. I'm trying not to cry. I don't want the guys to see how weak I am. <laughs> but I'm trying to eat my meal with, I'm holding this LaCroix like in a very like important position as I'm trying to eat. It's just very weird. But it was burning. It was blistering. I needed, it needed to be soothed. That, that passage here, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. If you have another translation than the ESV, it might say they were pierced or pricked or they were uh, smitten or they were stung in the heart. The realization of their rejection caused them in that moment to feel so hopeless. But look at what Peter says, verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for who all who are far off. Man, underline that. All who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received us were, were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. 3,000 people. Think of his audience in that moment, hopeless, but look at the response, full of hope. And the thing that jumps out to me is this. The grace of God can soothe a stinging heart. The grace of God, that undeserved favor can soothe a stinging heart. So here's what I believe. If you've joined us today, we're so glad that you're here, but if you don't have a relationship with Christ, just like these people who didn't know what was going on, they could hear the good news of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God could begin to convict them and you could start feeling this sting, this sorrow. But here's what I also know. There could be those of us in here who are believers who hear this message this morning and we too are feeling the sting of going, man, I have not been living my life for Christ. I have not been letting him be king in my life. I have not been who I say I am in the privacy and the quiet of my own life. I've got great news for both of those. The grace of God can soothe a stinging heart. 
It's the only thing that will help you see yourself rightly. It's the only thing that will help you see your sin as really as disgusting as it is. It's the only thing that will allow us to have the hope that we can actually overcome this, we can work through this, we can be restored and reconciled, is the grace of God. Not something we could pay him for, not something that we could earn on our own. He did it because of his great love for us. He didn't look at you and go, this is a pretty good group of people, so I'm gonna do it for this church. No, he said, I see all that is here and I love them because they have value that I have placed on them and I'm going to show them grace. We will feel cut to the heart too when we come to this realization. The, rea- the reality, our, re- our rejection stings. And so Peter's response shows off God's grace. The gospel, so big, so inclusive. Yes, it's exclusive in the fact that there's only one way to the Father. John 14 tells us, right? I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but through me, but so inclusive. Believe. And let the grace of God, this undeserved favor, begin to soothe your stinging heart because the promise of the Holy Spirit is for all who believe. 3,000 people. This is a historical fact. This actually happened. Do you believe that's true? But here's what I want you to know. This doesn't just happen in the olden days. God is saving people today. He might want to save you today. He might be calling out to you right now saying, believe this. Let me soothe your stinging heart. Let me forgive those sins. Let me put my Holy Spirit in you and now walk in newness of life. Man, that's awesome. But look what it began to do. Now these people, now there's 3,120 people based on the numbers provided in the text that now have the Holy Spirit. And look what it says happens here starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This response is incredible. 3,000 people get saved. But what we see here in these last section of chapter two is that the power of the Holy Spirit begins to transform this group of strangers into a body of believers. That's what we are. A bunch of transformed people brought together, not because we've all grown up in the same place, have the same experiences, have the same journey to Christ, or we're all doing the same thing or called to do the same kind of ministry. Not that we all have the same gifting. We're very diverse. And yet, he has brought us together. The Spirit of God united us together to serve together, to worship together, to live for him. So how do you know if a church is a spirit-led church or a body of people who are not being led by the Spirit. I think this text gives us a pretty clear picture of what we should be looking for. And I believe a Spirit-led church will reflect an uncommon unity and a glad generosity. I cannot tell you uh, in words this morning 
how much I love this church. I love the fact that we are so diverse. I look around the room this morning and I know so many of your stories and they're so different from me. And yet I rejoice in that. It's so incredible. I mean, look around that, he, that God would bring this group together and allow us to worship like we worship, allow us to, to care for one another like we're caring for one another. That is the spirit of God in us. And perhaps you're a guest. What we're hoping you see is not how great or cool we are because we're not great or cool. But here's what we want you to know. I think if there's anything that I've heard consistently by people who visit our church is that there's, there's a life in our church. And let me tell you, that's not life because we're healthy and fit. It's life because the Spirit of God is coming out of us because we have decided to say, I am certain that he is Lord in Christ and I have decided to follow him with my whole life. Amen. And a Spirit-led church is gonna have an uncommon unity. We're gonna see it around. We're gonna like, how in the world are we together? How, how does this work? It's only God, multi-generations. I had a chance to visit our senior saints small group a couple weeks ago and, and visit, and I, I mean, they prayed over me. I'm heading to India in a few weeks with our India team, and they just, it was powerful that they would love me that way. And I'm able to work with, with younger believers and be able to serve with some of our college-age ministries and just be able to see, like, what God is doing in their lives and then getting to walk with them through some of the same hurdles that I had to walk through that some of you walked through with me 20 years ago. This is an uncommon unity. I believe our church is spirit-led, not because we say so, but because that's what God is doing here. But I also believe that a spirit-led church is gonna have glad generosity. You're not gonna have to ask us twice to give because the spirit of the God causes us to lay things down and go, I'm not gonna hold on to these worldly treasures. That's not important to me anymore. I'm about him. Anything I give away, I can trust. He knows my needs and he's gonna take care of them. And it says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people in verse 47. We've been talking a lot about reaching our city, reaching our community. You wanna know how we can do that in a way that actually makes a difference, that actually transforms lives? Is by letting the spirit of God change us first and let the spirit of God drive our actions. This is how you impact a community. It's not by your resources or your intellect or your power and numbers. You influence a community when you let the Spirit of God change you from the inside out and you let the Spirit of God drive you to what you're supposed to be about. And I'm looking at a room of people who are doing that. And I'm thankful. But we have to continue to let the Spirit of God do that work in our lives. We cannot get complacent. We cannot get satisfied. A believer's confidence, a believer's conviction, a believer's confession, and a believer's community is built upon a certainty that Christ is Lord. So are you certain this morning? Are you sure that Jesus is Christ and Lord? I'm so glad there's four of us in here. <laughs> Here's the thing. That's funny. If you are certain that Christ is Lord, if Jesus is the Savior, does your life reflect it this morning? Yes. Well, I'm glad that you said yes to that. But the 
The real test is going to be, do people see Christ in you? Do they see your confidence, not because you're bringing them to yourself, but Christ is shining through you? But if you're not sure of that this morning, and you notice that we have this banter, and we have this, this favor with each other, you need to know this. You can be as certain today as those 3,000 people by placing your faith in Jesus, by believing that he died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. And you could walk out of here today certain of that. As we wrap up our time this morning, we're going to observe communion, uh, the Lord's table. And and communion is something we do as believers. And we just want to remind you that um, we're going to have the men in a moment come forward and pass out a a little cup of juice and a little wafer. and, And we do this in obedience. Just like baptism, we're called to do this as believers. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you, whether you attend our church or not, to participate in communion with us this morning. But if, but if you're not a believer, um, that's okay. You don't have to participate in it. No one's going to make you feel awkward. But this is for those who have placed their faith in Christ, who are certain that their identity is as a follower of Christ. And so we want you to make sure that, but we also see in scripture that we are to, to approach communion with a, a level of reflection and respect and awe, making sure that we are really thinking about what we're doing, that we're not just going through the motions, but that we are remembering what Christ did for us on our behalf, and we're looking forward to our eternity with him. And so I'm going to pray, and as I do, I'm going to invite the band to come up and have the men come forward, and we're going to pass out the elements, and then we will take them all together. So just hold on to that. I'll come back up after the song, and I'll lead us through that. But let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this church, and I thank you for not just what this church offers by way of people and their their natural abilities, but I'm thankful for this church because it is a, a church full of transformed lives, God. And thank you for saving us. Thank you for placing your Holy Spirit in us. And God, I pray that we would live with a certainty, and because of that certainty, Lord, that we would then live our lives not worried about what this world tells us is important, but that we live our lives in community with the believers in glad generosity, that we would, we would let the spirit come out and that we would not focus on the wrong things, but we'd focus on the most important thing, that is you, and that you would guide our steps as a church. Thank you for loving us. And now as we prepare to take communion, I ask, Lord, that you would help us prepare our hearts to receive this gladly. I pray it in your son's beautiful name. Amen.